Hello and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so that we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Our story today takes us to Middlesbrough, England, as we look into the life of a young English boy who remembers a very different life as a German soldier. Even as a baby, Carl Eden was very different. Born in 1972, he was the third child of Val and Jim Eden of Middlesbrough, England. The Edens were Christians and neither parent believed in reincarnation. In fact, Jim, upon hearing of Carl's memories, was openly sceptical and resistant to the concept of reincarnation. So Carl's mother said that Carl was the most difficult child of his siblings. He was awkward and different, so much so that his mother used to say to him, If I can find out where you come from, I'm sending you back, because he was so challenging. Val says that he was a troublesome child who wasn't necessarily interested in adventure stories or war films or such things. His friend, Michael Hudson, says that Carl stood out from the other members of his family. His brother and sister, Darren and Angela, were very different in appearance to Carl. Both were well-built with dark hair and tan complexions, whereas Carl was slighter of build with strawberry blonde hair, white eyelashes and blue eyes like his mother. In appearance, he could have been a poster child of the blonde Aryan race that Hitler dreamed of. But it wasn't just his physical appearance that made people wonder about Carl. As soon as he could speak, he started relating memories from a life before this one. Val said that as Carl grew and gained more command over his speech, his story became more detailed and he would tell it in such a matter-of-fact way that she and her husband Jim could no longer dismiss his recount out of hand as a toddler's daydream, or rather nightmare. Jim said that the little boy didn't speak like he was joking or pretending. Jim said it wasn't in jest or in fun, he was so serious about it and he wanted people to take him serious about it, and obviously a lot of people didn't. Michael, Carl's friend, found Carl's statements about his past life strange because he'd never heard any of his other friends talking like that or telling stories like this. At first, nobody paid a great deal of attention to the little boy putting it down to childish imagination or just a fantasy life, but... Carl kept telling his story and it never changed. I was lucky enough to get a copy of the book The Children That Time Forgot by Mary and Peter Harrison that was released in 1983 and contains detailed quotes from Val and Jim Eden from only a few years after Carl stopped speaking about his experiences and before all of the other events that unfold in this case. As Carl grew... He started using colouring books and doing dot-to-dots as most young children do, but one day Val's attention was caught when she saw that instead of just colouring, he'd started drawing peculiar-looking badges and motifs on the page. The drawings were very neat and were very unlike the other normal scribbles of a three-year-old. Most of the images were unknown to her, but she did recognise one little drawing. In the top corner of his colouring book, Carl had drawn a perfect German swastika. When Val asked him what he was drawing, he said, that's the kind of badges I wore on my uniform when I used to drive my plane. 
He told his family that he used to be a pilot in the German Air Force. He said his name was Robert, or Robert in English, when he flew the bomber, and that his father's name was Fritz. From 1974 to 1976, he would speak frequently about flying his German plane. Vell said she felt strange when Carl also started talking about his mother. Ian Stevenson began studying Carl's case in 1983. He and his team were intrigued by the drawings Carl had done before the age of five. Not only would he draw planes, badges and insignia, but just after he turned five, he started to draw the cockpit of his plane and he had positioned the gauges in their correct position and could explain what all of the dials were for. Jim says that he has no idea how Carl could know information like this, as there were no picture books in the house that showed German planes and certainly none that had a picture of a cockpit. Jim himself was born after the war, so he had no experience of life during wartime and the family wasn't particularly interested in the war and didn't have any war books in the house, a fact that Ian Stevenson himself confirmed. But it wasn't just his knowledge of planes that was surprising. Karl had memories of his life before the war and of life as a German soldier. He said that he'd been called Robert and his father in his previous life was a man called Fritz. Fritz had been a very jovial man. Karl said he was so funny and he always made me laugh and he took me for nice walks in the woods. Fritz told Robert about the trees, flowers and plants that surrounded their village as they took their rambles. Carl said that the village they lived in was picturesque and nestled among hills and lush woodland. He said, it was not a very big place, but I liked it. He told his mother, Val, that his other mother was plump, with dark curly hair and smallish glasses that she wore on the end of her nose. He said she was a bit bossy and he'd always had to do what he was told. He was made to do his share of the household tasks and he remembered that his regular chore was to gather wood for the large open fires in their home. He had very distinct memories of chopping up long tree trunks into small logs and then cutting them home in his barrow where he stored them as fuel. The smell of newly chopped logs was a memory that the little boy recalled clearly and he described it as a nice fresh smell which always reminds me of the woods. One of the other smells which Carl brought with him to this life was the smell of cooking. He remembered a soup his mother made, but he says, It wasn't like the soup I get now. It was a dark red colour and it was quite thick. My mother made it nearly every day. And he said with a laugh, I used to get other things to eat as well, only I can't remember what the other things were like, but I know that I got them as well as soup. He remembered enlisting in the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, when he was 19 years old, and he has memories of being stationed on a large Air Force camp with lots of huts in rows. Carl told his parents that the huts had sinks in them, but there were no taps for water. The water came out of a pump. He relates how he and his fellow comrades were trained in first aid, and anyone who was injured was treated by the men themselves. All of them were called on to know and perform this duty if it was required. But both Val and Jim were really startled when Carl told them that he'd been made to salute a framed picture of Adolf Hitler. Up until this point, his parents hadn't even been aware that Carl even knew of Adolf Hitler. 
According to the little boy, he said there was a picture of Hitler on the wall and we had to stamp our feet and salute to this picture. He then went on to demonstrate the stamp and salute, which he executed as if they were second nature to him. Carl's father, Jim, was sceptical at first of his son's claims and he tried to prove to his son that his memories were just imagination by researching the things that Carl had told him. Carl told his father that he used to fly a Messerschmitt 110 or 104. He couldn't remember the exact number. And Jim told him, well, you failed there, Carl, because the Messerschmitt is a fighter, not a bomber. The family, as I've mentioned, didn't have any war books in their house, so Jim, determined to prove to Carl that his memories were false, called into the library on his way home from work to find some books on German aircraft from the last war. And he found that the plane that Carl described was in fact correct. The Messerschmitt 110 is, in fact, a combined fighter-bomber. When asked by his father about his uniform, Carl replied that he wore grey trousers tucked into knee-high leather boots and a black jacket. Jim was sceptical of Carl's statements, as I've mentioned, so he went back to the library to check on the uniform and discovered that, in fact, the uniform had been correctly described by Carl but also that the badges and icons were accurate representations and that the drawing of the cockpit was accurate as well. According to Val, the one time they did watch a movie about World War II, Carl immediately pointed out the factual errors in the film. He was watching the film and suddenly piped up, that man's like my sergeant when I was in the Air Force, but he's got the badge on the wrong side of his uniform. His parents let it pass at the time, but Jim took notice and went back to the library later to check the information, and sure enough, the badge was worn on the opposite side of the uniform. When the family watched a documentary about the Holocaust, Carl told them that his Air Force base was near a concentration camp that was being documented. His parents thought the camp he was talking about was Auschwitz, but they can't be 100% sure. His mother said that as time went on, there were so many things that the family couldn't deny the knowledge that Carl had. Ian Stevenson also felt that Carl shared the traits of a German soldier in that he stood ramrod straight with an erect posture and his hands would be at his side in a military stance. He didn't share his parents' English love of a good cup of tea and preferred coffee as per the Germanic custom. Apparently Carl also had a fondness for sausages which was seen as being proof that he was of German descent as sausages are popular in Germany but it should also be noted that sausages, or bangers as the English call them, are also popular in Britain too. Carl spoke of his memories from around the age of two, and as time went on he began to describe the crash and his subsequent death. When he would talk about being a pilot or the crash, he would spontaneously make the Nazi salute, as we've seen in movies, which is the arm extended straight out and slightly above horizontal, with the fingers pointed straight out together, and the thumb below and slightly towards the palm with the palm facing down. Carl could remember the crash that killed him clearly, and he could describe it in chilling detail. He said he was flying low over some buildings, and he must have lost consciousness for a few moments, as it all went black for a moment. When he came around again in the cockpit of the plane, he was aware of a building rushing towards him at great speed. He desperately tried to wrench the controls to avoid collision, but it was too late, and the plane bulldozed its way right through the large glass windows of the building. Carl remembers the horrendous sensation that swept over him as he realised that he had lost his leg. He also remembered his thoughts just before he died of feeling sad for a pretty young Fräulein, 
from Klobert's village in Germany, to whom he'd been engaged to be married. They'd been childhood sweethearts and had grown up together, although she was several years younger than he was. He remembered feeling a great feeling of compassion for her, knowing that she would be given the shattering news of his death. Carl, frequently given to understatement, simply related, I felt sorry for her. Not long after these feelings, the loss of his limb combined with the other injuries he sustained in the crash became too overwhelming, and Robert died shortly after the crash. Ian Stevenson was particularly interested in the fact that Robert had lost his leg, as Carl Eden did in fact have a very large protruding birthmark in his right groin, and Stevenson speculated about whether this could be related to the loss of his leg in the crash. Carl said he didn't recall much of what happened after he died, but he was acutely aware of having a younger brother called Peter, who was also a pilot. He was convinced that his brother also died shortly after Robert himself bled to death among the wreckage of his plane. So when the book was published about Carl's story, the English newspapers picked up the story and ran with it, which created serious problems for the little boy. Already set apart as being different, the little boy with the stiff military stance was teased by his peers at school. The other children would call him Hitler, Nazi and German pilot, doing the goose step and the Nazi salute at him, telling him he was making it all up just to get in the newspapers. By the age of around nine or ten, Karl had learned not to speak of his experiences and stopped talking about it. Life went on and Carl grew into a man meeting a girl and having children of his own. Carl's family and friends hoped that someday he would find the answer to his extraordinary past, but tragedy struck before the answers could be found about his memories. Carl was working as a railway employee. One night, in August 1995, 22-year-old Carl had been sent to pick up some railway carriages in Skidden Grove. He ended up getting into a disagreement with another railway employee at the Grangetown signal cabin, and an argument ensued. His co-worker, Gary Vintner, snapped and stabbed Carl 23 times, leaving him to bleed to death by the tracks. Michael Hudson, Carl's friend, said he felt shocked and numb when he heard of Carl's death, because Carl had told him when they were both children that he would not live a very long life and that he would die before he was 25, and he said he would die by bleeding to death. Gary Vintner was jailed in 1996 for life for Carl's murder, but was released nine years later and then went on to murder his estranged wife, Anne White. This second murder landed him back in jail, again with a verdict of a life sentence, never to be released, but he's since won an appeal case taking off the never-to-be-released ruling so he may end up back on the streets at some point. He appeared once more before a judge for stabbing his cellmate Roy Whiting with a sharpened plastic toilet brush handle, so he's hoping that delays his chances at freedom. After Carl's death, an event occurred that brought the case back into the headlines again. On the 26th of November 1997, which was two years after Carl was murdered, and less than half a mile from the tracks where he was killed, Waterboard workers were digging a pipeline for new sewerage and unearthed a German bomber from World War II. So to follow the story of the plane that was found. On the 15th of January 1942, 
Adornia DO-217 was attacking shipping and ports along the northeast coast. The plane was staffed with four crewmen. Pilot Joachim Lennis, wireless operator Hans Manecki, observer Lieutenant Rudolf Matern, and gunner mechanic Heinrich Richter. It is thought that the plane had attacked various sites at Skin and Grove and Eston before bombing a merchant ship that was anchored off Hartlepool. The ship eventually sank, but not before damaging the aircraft's engine. On fire, the Dornier then headed inland towards Middlesbrough, and its wing struck the cable of the barrage balloon known as Annie that was protecting the Smith's Dock shipyard. Seconds later, the Dornier dived to the ground and smashed onto the railway sidings near what is now South Bank Railway Station at approximately 6.30 at night, creating a crater approximately 12 feet deep. Because the rail track was an important line that couldn't be held up for long, a thorough investigation of the crash site could not be undertaken. So repair crews pulled the plane off to the bank at the side of the track and buried it under a mound of earth. Then they filled in the crater and relayed the tracks to get the line operational again. At the time of the crash, three bodies were retrieved from the wreckage and were buried at Thornaby Cemetery. It was known at the time that there should have been four people on the plane, but the fourth member, believed to be Hans Manecki, could not be found and was listed as missing in action. Valerie Eden remembered Carl saying that Robert's life had ended in 1942, which was the same year as the bomber crashed. With the unearthing of the plane by the crew laying the sewerage pipes in 1977, this time a thorough examination of the plane was undertaken and the fourth crew member was discovered. The remains were forensically tested, and the body was identified as 24-year-old Heinrich Richter, not Hans Manecki, as was originally thought. Richter's leg was found detached from the body, with the leg still in the boot, so it appears that Richter also lost his leg during the crash. With the forensic findings, the graves needed to be altered at Thornabury. A new tombstone was made for Manecki and was placed on the original remains that were thought to be Richter's, and Heinrich Richter's actual remains were finally laid to rest in Thornaby Cemetery alongside his crew. Honorary German consul John Knight helped to oversee the excavation of the downed bomber. Remembering the reports of Carl's memories in the paper, he noted many similarities to the bomber and Carl's case. Mr Knight states that when the plane came down, it came down nose first, which would have shattered glass at the front of the plane, and no doubt all of the crew would have suffered from injuries sustained by the glass fragments. In the crashed plane, a gold ring was found with the initial P engraved on it. It was postulated that perhaps the ring belonged to Heinrich Richter, as Carl had always had a memory of Robert having a brother named Peter. When the body was discovered, authorities tried to find his family members in Germany so they could notify them that Richter's body had been located, but no trace of his family could be found. A funeral was held in England, and Richter was buried next to his three comrades in the Thornbury Cemetery. Jim and Val Eden went to the funeral. Valerie stated that it was bittersweet as it felt like burying Carl again for a second time. But she said to Jim that now they had put Carl to rest in his previous life as well as this life and that hopefully that would be the end to it now. 
but there was one more piece of information for the family to discover before they felt they could consider the matter closed. Now, far be it from me to criticise the contact attempts of local authorities who originally tried to find Richter's family, but a local historian, Bill Norman, fascinated by the case, not only tracked down Richter's family, but managed to speak to a nephew of his. He also managed to obtain a photo of Heinrich Richter, and the comparison was made at the time of the two men's startling similarity. Seeing Richter's photo was the proof that Val and Jim needed to confirm to themselves that Carl's memories were true. I will post the photos on my Facebook page so my listeners can see the two men side by side. I can see the similarity around their nose and the eyes, but to me, their faces are different because Carl's chin is more pointed than Richter's, and Richter's features are a lot more chiselled than Carl's. Carl's seem perhaps slightly softer and not as well defined. But I'll leave you to make your own minds up about it. So that could be said to be the end of the tale of Carl Eden. And around about now, I should be thanking you for listening and going into my usual end spiel. But is this case really laid to rest? Pretty much the rest of the world thinks of this as a solved case. I beg to differ. When we look at the extensive list of information that Carl provided to us before his death, there are indeed some facts that do tally with the facts of the Down Dornier in 1942. But nobody seems to want to point out the many facts that don't. So if we look at Carl's memories, Carl said that his name was Robert. Heinrich, when translated to English, is the German version of Henry or Harry. Carl remembers flying Messerschmitts. Heinrich Richter's plane that crashed on Southbank was the Dornier. Heinrich himself was a gunner mechanic, not a pilot. Carl says he was a pilot and that he drove the plane. Importance was laid on the fact that both men were close in age when they died, but they were not the same age. Carl was 22 when he died. Richter was 24 and given conscription and the nationalistic fervour that led young and idealistic men into war, I would imagine that a lot of the pilots were younger than 30 and probably in their early 20s. Carl never varied his recount of his death, that he blacked out and woke up seeing a building coming at him with terrific speed, and that he desperately tried to avoid colliding by yanking on the controls. But it was much too late, and he flew into the window of the building. I cannot in any way see how that can be tweaked to match a burning plane punching into railway tracks. Yes, the glass in the plane would have exploded on impact, and there would have been glass everywhere, but that still does not fit the facts that Carl relates. There is no mention of the Dornier striking any buildings or smashing through any glass structures before it met its end. And let's not forget, we are talking about the memories of a young boy from a period of four to approximately nine years of age whose recall is so vivid he can remember large chunks of the life he lived with extraordinary detail, up to and including the colour, smell and thickness of the soup that his mother made. Is he really going to get the graphic image of his own death so badly wrong? Carl remembers having one brother, named Peter. 
Heinrich Richter had three brothers, although I don't know what their names were, so I don't know if any of them were called Peter. I can't tell you whether the ring relates to Richter or belonged to someone else in the plane. Karl does remember losing his leg, and so apparently did Heinrich Richter. But by the very nature of plane crash in wartime, I would not be surprised to learn that loss of limbs would be a regular occurrence when you think of a 2,900 kilogram or 6,395 pound plane impacting with a solid target particularly when that same plane could be very well damaged before impact with no ability to even try and lessen the speed of its final impact. Remember, Robert blacked out of the cockpit at a point just before his crash, so he may well have had injuries already before he crashed, and his plane must have been travelling at almost maximum speed as he crashed through the window. So what am I saying? Am I saying that I don't believe Carl's accounts? Not in the slightest. In fact, I think Carl's case, if we could find the right down plane and the right pilot, could be as conclusive as James Leniger's case. I think Robert's story is still out there. I think Carl really did remember his past life with extraordinary clarity. It bothers me to think of Carl so determined to make people hear his story, so hopeful that someone would believe him lose it all again to an ironic coincidence that has possibly diverted his memory once again into the realm of myth. I really wish Carl had lived, not only for his children and for his grieving partner, but also so that he could have told us if Heinrich Richter's life and death really was the life he remembered living so clearly. His story now remains permanently frozen to its current truth. So I'm putting this to you as my own unsolved history case. I will list all of the memories that Carl mentioned in the hope that maybe it rings a chord with someone. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Music